All right. Well, welcome to session four of the Biblical Worldview course. My name is Joel Sedeckes, and today we're going to be talking about knowledge. And, you know, this is one of those questions that you might not really think all that much about until you have to, until you're confronted with a worldview that believes something differently, someone who believes something different from you. So we're going to go ahead and dive right in. My name is Joel Sedeckes. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach Bible at a Christian high school in Chicago. Impacted by my students' questions, I set out on a journey that brought me first to seminary to study apologetics and philosophy of religion, and then into pastoral ministry. As a pastor, I saw firsthand the struggle of believers confronted with questions of life that at first seemed impossible to answer, and the powerful confidence that came when they saw how God's Word gives the answers and guidance they needed. I had a dream to spread that message and equip more followers of Jesus, so my family and I joined crew and launched the Think Institute. Now, I'm on a mission to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message by applying timeless biblical truths to current cultural challenges. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, learning how to interpret all of life through the lens of God's Word takes a lot of work, more than just one or two podcast episodes a week. If you have an interest in the intersection between the biblical worldview and biblical manhood and current events, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, consider joining our free online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and on Signal. There you can join hundreds of other Christ followers who are also on the same journey, and we trade apologetic stories and strategies, we discuss philosophy and theological questions. It's like a huge bull session around a bonfire in your backyard or at your favorite cigar lounge. So check out the Think Squad group on Facebook, Gab, and Signal. So this is the biblical worldview course, and we are um, going through the seven key questions that every worldview must answer in order to be a complete worldview, in order to give you a complete picture of the world. So um, this is the biblical worldview course. It is presented by the Hammer and Anvil Society, which is the discipleship wing of the Think Institute. If you're unfamiliar with the Think Institute, it's an organization that strives to help dads lead their families in defending the truth of the Christian message. We were founded on the belief that no follower of Jesus Christ ever should get caught flat-footed when asked about what or why we believe. And so tonight we're talking about what we believe, and that's all part of the Biblical Worldview course. So if you want to learn more about the Think Institute or myself, you can go to www.thethink.institute and get more information about us there.
Again, the Hammer and Anvil Society is the discipleship wing of the Think Institute. All right, so this is session four, and we're going to be tackling the question, how can we know anything for certain? Very important question. And tied up with this question are other questions. And that's usually the way that things work when we're dealing with questions of worldview. Usually these topics, I'm going to say always, these topics never stand on their own. They always are bound up with other important questions. So when we're talking about knowledge or what can we know for certain, we're going to need to ask some other questions like what is knowledge? We better define our terms if we're going to be tackling this question. Where does knowledge come from? That's important to know. What is knowledge for? Is there a purpose to knowledge itself? Is it for something? And then is knowledge possible without God? Obviously, I'm going to lay my cards on the table here. If uh, if you didn't know, I am a Christian. I'm coming from a Christian perspective. The Think Institute is a Christian ministry, and we're striving to to base everything that we do on the Word of God, on Scripture. And so if we're talking about knowledge, we're going to be approaching it from a Christian perspective. But then, of course, that raises the, the question, is knowledge going to be possible without God? We'll talk about that as well. So the big question that we're going to be tackling, the big matzo ball that's hanging out there, is how can we know anything at all? How can we really know anything at all? Did you ever think about that? What makes you think that you can have any knowledge about anything ever in life? And you might say, well, I know, I know tons of things. Well, sure. I know that you know tons of things. I know tons of things as well. But when you really stop and think about it, on what basis do we think that the things that we know are actually known by us? What if everything that we think that we know is wrong. Or as one of my friends who's a Christian apologist, Saiten Bruggenkate puts it, could there be a fact out there in the universe that contradicts everything that you think that you know? You ever think about that? Do you have certainty about anything that you know? All right, so these are things that we all need, that we need to look at tonight. So let's start by talking about knowledge. Now, for the, for the definition of knowledge, I'm going to be using Alvin Plantinga's definition, which is that knowledge is warranted true belief. Basically, what that means is you know something, you know a proposition, you know a, a piece of knowledge. When you believe it, it's true, and you're warranted in that belief. And warrant, we're going to explain what that means. Really, it just means you have a good reason for believing it. You didn't just come to it randomly, or you don't believe it in spite of the reasons to the contrary. So knowledge is warranted true belief. Let's break down each of these words and really get into what does this mean? Knowledge is warranted true belief. What is warrant? What is What does true mean? And what is belief? All right, let's start with warrant. Now, according to Alvin Plantinga, and this is going to be my paraphrased version of how he defines the term warrant, but warrant, um, a belief is warranted 
when it is produced by truth-seeking faculties that are functioning properly in a propitious environment according to a design plan aimed at producing true beliefs. And then he says, uh, the likelihood then, or or, uh, it's warranted when the likelihood is that such faculties will produce um, true beliefs. But again, we're, we're talking about a belief that you didn't just arrive at randomly, but rather it was produced by faculties, by facilities that you have, faculties that you have, and they're functioning properly. They're functioning the way that they're supposed to. And the environment in which they're functioning is similar enough to the environment in which they were designed to function. And that's really important. That's getting kind of complex there. But basically what this assumes is that your faculties, my faculties as human beings, were designed to seek after truth, to produce true beliefs. And they were designed to function in a particular environment. You know, a fish was designed for the water. A fish might be functioning just fine, but if it's out of the water, um, it's going to flop around like a fish out of water. In the same way, your truth-seeking faculties, in order for your the beliefs they produce to be considered warranted, need to be in an environment that we're going to call propitious or uh, similar enough to the way that they were, to the environment in which they were designed to function. And then all of this presupposes that there was a design plan that is behind your beliefs. Otherwise, why would we think that they're even aimed at truth at all? Okay, so this is my own interpretation of Alvin Plantinga's um, definition, and I, I like that. I think that it works. So what does it mean to be true then? So remember, knowledge is warranted, true belief. Here's my own definition of truth. Truth is an attribute or a quality that a proposition has, that a statement has, a claim, whatever whatever you want to call it, a proposition, when it is coherent, meaning there are no logical contradictions, it's, it's, an, it's a coherent statement, uh, when it is correspondent to reality, in other words, it reflects the way things actually are, it reflects the true state of affairs, and it's communicable in comprehensive language. In other words, whether or not you're speaking it out loud, it makes sense. It's, uh, you know, any any proposition has to follow the laws of grammar in order for it to make sense. Basically, what it means is it's a statement that is logical, it is sensible, makes sense, and it agrees with the state of affairs. It agrees with the way things really are. When all those conditions obtain, your proposition is true. Truth is an attribute or a quality that that proposition has. And then what about a belief? Well, according to the American Heritage Dictionary, belief is acceptance of something as true, actual, or valid. And so you believe something when you hold it to be true, actual, or valid. When you accept something, when you mentally assent to a proposition. Now, we're talking about what can we know for certain? What what does certainty mean? What does it mean to be certain? Now, man, you ask three Christians this, you're going to get four different answers. All right. Nobody agrees on what certain means. Some people mean think that it means you're just really convinced. I had an atheist tell me that one time, that, or he was tell, telling somebody else, but I overheard. To be certain is really just to be really, really, really convinced of something. You know, yes and no. I get That's one definition. 
But the way that we're using it here with regard to knowledge means it it's something about which you cannot be wrong. It's something about which you cannot be wrong. That's basically how my friend Owen Anderson describes it. I like that. And I think that if we're going to be laying down a foundation for knowledge, that foundation is going to have to be certain. Otherwise, we're going to end up in that state of affairs that I described earlier, where there could be a fact in the universe that contradicts every fact that you think that you know, in which case you really don't know anything. But if we have a certain starting point about which we cannot be wrong, then we have a foundation upon which we can build the rest of our beliefs. So that's the kind of certainty, the kind of epistemic certainty, certainty about knowledge or certainty pertaining to knowledge that we really need in order to have really true knowledge. So unless you know at least one thing for certain, you really can't know anything. And there are some people who say, well, we really can't know anything. Well, then of course, the next question that you should ask them is, well, are you certain about that? Yes, I'm certain that I I can't be certain about anything. Okay, well, then you're certain about that. And then are you certain that you're certain about that? Yes. Okay, that's two things and so on and so forth. So the idea that we can't be certain about anything really is an incoherent idea. But, uh, But we can be certain about things and we need to figure out what those things are so we can have a good starting point. All right, now, so we've described what knowledge is. Knowledge is warranted, true belief. Where does knowledge come from? That's that's a really important uh, question that we need to to ask. Where does warranted true belief come from? Well, remember, we're answering this as Christians. So we better get our answer from God's Word, from the Bible. And according to the Bible, God reveals Himself to us. He reveals true knowledge to us, and that we we, we access that knowledge through the production of true beliefs using our truth-seeking faculties. Those three faculties are our reason, our senses, five senses, uh, touch, taste, sight, smell, and um, hearing. And then the third one is our feelings, or you might call it our intuition. So reason, senses, and feelings or intuition. Okay, those are our our truth-seeking faculties. And you know, they're really important. It's really important to know what those faculties are because those three faculties are each going to correspond to one of the three ways that God reveals himself to us. So God has given us these faculties and he reveals knowledge to us through these faculties. And that that knowledge then is going to originate from three different sources. The first source is divine law. The second source is the natural world. And the third source is the human self, ourselves. So you and me, our actual selves. So look how the three faculties correspond to the three sources of knowledge. Reason corresponds with divine law. Our senses, our five senses, those correspond with the natural world around us, nature. And our feelings or our intuition um, that arises from within ourselves, that arises from our, you know, those are things that we intuit. Now I'm drawing heavily on an article by John Frame and really just John Frame's thought here. There's a great 20, uh, a great article from 2012 on his website, frame-poithress.com. 
.com or .org, I forget what it is. But um, if you snoop around on that website, you'll find where Frame talks about the different um, the different ways that we access knowledge. Okay, but we've got these three faculties, and each one of the faculties corresponds with one of the three sources of knowledge. Let's talk first about divine law then. Divine law, uh, here we're referring to things like laws of logic or moral law. Now, the ultimate example of divine law is going to come from Scripture itself. It's in Scripture that we have God's covenantal communication with us. It's in Scripture where we have God revealing to us the authoritative history of the world and God's interaction with his covenant people and with those who are not his covenant people. And we we access the divine law and, and the knowledge that it reveals through our reasoning. So here are some scripture passages that talk about scripture itself as sort of the ultimate example of divine law. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, what does that say? It says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Romans 2, 15, that's the passage that talks about how the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires and show themselves to be a law unto themselves, showing that the work of the law is written on their hearts. What's that talking about? There's the, there's this divine moral law, this absolute law, that even non-Christians, even Gentiles in the old days who didn't have the law of Moses still had access to um, through their their reasoning, through their uh, their sensibilities, their faculties. And then John 1, 1 through 12 gives us this amazing prologue to John's gospel, wherein we see that Jesus is the logos, the divine principle governing and ordering the world. And it says that he, Jesus, was the light of men. And um, and that's that. So the, the logos is, is written into the fabric of the universe and all light that humanity has ever had has come through that Logos, who is ultimately personified as Jesus Christ. So that's divine law. And again, that's accessed through our reason. Then, of course, we have the natural world. God does reveal truth through the natural world, doesn't he? This is, for, for you science geeks, uh, this is, I'm speaking your language here. God reveals truth and knowledge through the natural world. Three examples. And this is by no means exhaustive, but here are three that are mentioned in Scripture. The heavens. So if you love astronomy, if you love um, astrophysics, you know, if you always wanted to be an astronaut when you grew up, or you love, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy, also known as the Space Trilogy, which talks about entering into the heavens, then uh, this is for you. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, so God reveals himself. God reveals truth and knowledge in the heavens, according to Psalm 19. Then uh, another example would be human history. Psalm 111 says that the works of God are remembered and they are studied by all who delight in him. If you read Psalm 111, you'll get this great uh, uh, expounding on how the things that God has done are remembered by his people. They are called to mind by his people. And that that calling to mind brings forth praise from God's people. Man, when you go back and you look at human history, 
I'm talking about the, the stuff that's recorded in scripture, you know, like the Exodus or the period of the, the judges or the exile and how God brought his people back. But then also look at human history outside of scripture. Maybe you're a student of history and you love, you know, reading about the American Revolution and how the, the biblical principles there were um were you know coalesced into the American Constitution and and how God sovereignly ordained that and and you can see his providential hand in the even the history of our own nation. I'm of course speaking from the United States. Um even the scientific revolution itself or any technological revolution that we've had, you can see God's hand governing our history. It's really amazing, isn't it? It's fascinating. And then the third way that God reveals himself, um, again, this list is not exhaustive, but uh, in the natural world would be through the animal kingdom. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 talks about going to the ant. It says, go to the ant, you sluggard or you slacker, if you read the CSB like I do. And uh, you know, you can you can study Proverbs is great for this because Proverbs is always giving these examples of these different um animals, you know, whether it's the ant or the lizard or the uh, rock badger. And it says, you know, look at the animals and draw uh, true conclusions from what they're like, you know, draw wisdom for life based on the behavior of these animals. And so God reveals himself in the natural world, whether it's the heavens, human history, animals. And you know what? The the natural world, John Frame points this out, the natural world really encompasses everything in creation that's physical and tangible. So even a physical copy of the Bible, so I've got a New Testament here in my hand, even the physical book that I'm holding in my hand, the words on the paper, you know, those words are communicating ideas, but this, this, the physical atoms and materials that make up this book you know, they're able to communicate knowledge. So it's really amazing when you start to think about how God revealed himself in the natural world. It's it's really fascinating. And then finally, the third source of knowledge then is the human self, the self itself. You know, for example, uh, God has written eternity on our hearts, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11. Our very hearts, the core of our being and our will and our thinking is inscribed with this desire to understand eternity. You know, we know just through self-reflection and self-introspection that we were created for an eternal world, that we were created for a reality that transcends the physical world. We are not beasts. We're not inanimate objects. We are men. We are human beings, and God has put eternity on our hearts. We discover these things about ourselves through reflection of our uh, reflection on ourselves. He's also written; um, he, he's revealed knowledge to us through our conscience. Again, Romans two fifteen. Now, earlier I referenced Romans two fifteen uh, uh, as an example of God's moral law, but that moral law is inscribed on our hearts, on our consciences, on our moral sensibilities. You know, human beings are the only quote-unquote animal that has a conscience. I know some of you dog owners are going to say, no, my dog can tell right from wrong. My dog can love. No, your dog does not know right from wrong. Your dog is a beast. Your dog knows what he has been trained, what it what it's been conditioned to do, and it knows when it's breaking that uh, conditioning, uh, but that's not a moral 
sense the way you and I have. A dog doesn't feel bad when it bites another dog. It doesn't, you know, go home and, you know, wallow in guilt and pity, self-pity and self-loathing the way you and I do when we give into sin and temptation. And this, it makes sense then that human beings would, would be able to gain knowledge through self-reflection because we have been made in the image of God the Imago Dei. According to Genesis 1.27, Genesis 2.7, we were created in the image of God. God breathed life into us. And then, you know what? Romans 1.18 through 24 talks about how God's attributes, his invisible attributes, his namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly revealed in the things that have been made, in the crea- creation and you and I are part of that creation. So it would make sense that we can gain knowledge through the uh, through self-introspection, through ourselves. So those are the sources of knowledge, and those are the faculties through which knowledge is accessed. I hope you're still tracking with me here, because we're trying to answer this question. Can we know anything for certain? What can we know for certain? Well, we've talked about what knowledge is and where knowledge comes from. And ultimately, what we've seen is that knowledge arises from God. Knowledge comes from God as the source of true, certain knowledge, uh, true, warranted, true belief. All right, so then if God has given us knowledge, and God never wastes anything, God never does anything randomly or pointlessly, so then he must have a purpose for giving us knowledge. So what is that purpose? What is knowledge for? Now that we've we've seen what knowledge is, where it comes from, let's see if we can get to a biblical answer of what knowledge is for. Well, the first thing that knowledge is for, the first reason why God gives us knowledge, it's not just for its own sake, but rather it's to direct our attention and our hearts toward God. Knowledge is out there so that we can know God. Now, throughout the course of this lecture, I've been saying, I've been saying, you know, we have knowledge because God has revealed himself. And it's been a slip of the tongue. I haven't even meant to say it. I've been catching myself as I say it, but I've been saying God reveals himself this way. God reveals himself that way. I don't know if you caught that or not. If you did, feel free to let me know in the comments or drop me an email at uh, thethink.institute slash contact. But the reason why I made that slip of the tongue over and over is because this is where I was going. The point of knowledge is so that we might know God. This is the first reason for knowledge. You know, uh, Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, that eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. So knowledge is is bound up with knowing God, and eternal life is bound up with knowing God. And if God has revealed knowledge to us in the natural world, in ourselves, through divine law, and it's all designed to to reveal who he is, as Romans 1 indicates, then God wants us to know him, and he wants us to have life through that knowledge. Jesus says eternal life is knowing God, The Apostle John in John chapter 20, verse 31, says that he wrote his book, the Gospel of John, so that we might have life in Jesus' name. And then when you look in biblical history, 
So many times, especially in the Old Testament, God will do something amazing for his people. And then his people will respond through through a declaration of what God is like. They'll call God something. So for example, in Genesis 22, verse 14, God provides a sacrifice to Abraham and spares his son, Isaac. And Abraham calls God Yahweh Yireh. I'm probably totally butchering that Hebrew, but um, this is, you know, if you've ever heard someone say Jehovah Jireh, which is like not the original Hebrew, but it's a popular way of saying it. Jehovah Jireh means the Lord provides. In Judges 6.24, when God reveals himself to Gideon, and Gideon flips out because he realizes that he's seen and spoken to God, God says, don't freak out. I'm paraphrasing. Don't freak out. Be at peace. And so Gideon names that place, the Lord is peace. So he has knowledge revealed to him, and he, he immediately connects that knowledge back to God. Uh, the Lord is peace. So all throughout Scripture, we find um, we find that knowledge is directed back towards the knowledge of God. First so, uh, Samuel seventeen forty five is another great example. David goes out and he conquers, he kills Goliath right after he declares the Lord to be the Lord of hosts. He calls him Yahweh Sabaoth, which means the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. And so um, when God reveals knowledge to us, that knowledge is meant to be directed back toward the knowledge of God. God wants us to know him. He wants us to have life through the knowledge of him. He wants us to uh, worship and to praise him. All right, so that's the first point of knowledge. What else? Knowledge is to know God. Knowledge is also so that we will love God. And I just have one passage to share with you here. Psalm 19. Earlier, I referenced Psalm 19, and I said that uh, it, it, it teaches us about the natural world. Do you remember? The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, if you follow that line in Psalm 19, that theological line, it starts with the knowledge of God revealed in the heavens, but then David transitions and he starts praising God's law. And then he ends Psalm 19 with this beautiful prayer to be purified from his sins. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's law declares the glory of God. And I want my heart to be in accordance with both, with God's revelation in nature and God's revelation in his word. I want my heart to reflect that. I want to love God more. I want to obey God more. And that actually brings us to the third purpose of knowledge, according to scripture, which is that we would live for God. You know, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. But in, in, uh, in Proverbs 1.7 and then elsewhere in Proverbs, it talks about how the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and to receive instruction. So the very thing that is the, the basis and the foundation or the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord, is also the starting point for a life lived rightly, righteously. In other words, knowledge and righteous living both have the same root, the fear of of the Lord. So, if you fear the Lord, you will have knowledge and you will also live righteously. You will live 
for God. In Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21, I encourage you to look up that passage because you get this amazing um, promise from God. And what he says to his people, he says, look, you're wayward and you're, you haven't been following me and you're going to have tribulation. But one day you will know your teacher. You will see your teacher. And when you do, uh, you will hear a voice that will tell you, this is the way. Walk in it. I'm going to read you the exact passage. Here's what it says. The Lord will give you meager bread and water during oppression, but your teacher will not hide any longer. Your teacher, listen to that language. You're going to have knowledge. Your eyes will see your teacher. And whenever you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Isn't that an amazing promise? See, knowledge, and, and what is a teacher for if not to give us knowledge? Knowledge is going to come from God himself. Of course, as a Christian, we understand the ultimate teacher is the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave us another teacher, or a, another comforter, who's also the ultimate teacher because he's the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And we hear this internal voice guiding us. This is the way. Walk in it. Walk with the Lord. Walk according to wisdom. Walk according to knowledge, according to righteousness. So that's the purpose of knowledge. Now, we've looked at what knowledge is. We've looked at where it comes from. But there's one question we really haven't considered. Is God really necessary for knowledge? Is it really necessary to believe in God? What, what if we have a different worldview? In fact, what if we take God out of the equation entirely? Can we still have knowledge from those sources of knowledge, you know, reason, the natural world, human intuition? Can, can we still assume that we have these truth-seeking faculties that are aimed at truth? And as long as they're functioning in a, functioning in a propitious environment, can still deliver warranted true beliefs? Well, let's consider that. Let's look at three alternatives to the biblical form of uh, knowledge seeking. And we're going to call these three different epistemologies. Epistemology is the word that means studying knowledge or the study of knowledge. And there have been three tendencies, maybe not only three, but at least three main tendencies that man has veered off toward when he has tried to come to knowledge and explain knowledge apart from God. These three different alternatives, these godless alternatives are rationalism, empiricism, and subjectivism. Rationalism, empiricism, and subjectivism. Let's talk about rationalism first. Rationalism says that true knowledge, real knowledge, comes only through accessing absolute principles through a priori reasoning. A priori reasoning. This is thinking that you do just in your own head. A priori has to do with, you know, think about the word prior. Okay, this is prior to any interaction with the world. So I can think in my head, I can think one plus one is two. I can think that and I can think, I can be certain about that. One plus one cannot be one. It cannot be three. One plus one is necessarily two. 
Or I can think about, you know, a law of logic, like the law of non-contradiction. Um, a is not not A. I can be certain about that. I can use my reasoning uh, to access that law of logic. Okay. Or I can think it's always wrong to murder someone, to kill someone unjustly. Okay. Sort of by definition, I can be certain about that. Or um, let me give you one more example. All bachelors are unmarried. Okay. That's, that's a no brainer because that's, that's definitionally true. Okay. So a rationalist says the only thing, the only things we can be certain about are these a a priori accessed truisms that we, we, we come to through processes of reasoning in our own minds. And uh, a famous example of this is Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes believed he could build a whole foundation of, of knowledge and a whole system of knowledge based purely from the starting point of, uh, I think, therefore, I am. Okay, so Descartes believed he could do that. Um, you still have people today, rationalists, who believe they can do that. I spoke recently with an atheist on his channel who believed that his own existence was the starting point and the only necessary foundation for truth and for for coming to knowledge about the whole universe. Now, a rationalist, here's the problem with rationalism. To be a consistent rationalist, you only trust your reasoning in terms of certainty. All knowledge has to be based on your reason, your rationality. To the neglect of your uh, uh, the physical world and your human intuition. So it neglects the other two sources of knowledge. And because you've taken God out of the picture, there's no way to integrate the three sources. You really just focus and, and hone only in on your reason and on these, these um, rationally accessed laws, you know, these moral laws or these... Um, logical laws, mathematical principles, things like that. Here's the problem. Well, there's, there's a number of problems. The first problem is this. There is much knowledge that we can gain through our senses and through our intuition. And rationalism, if it's consistent, negates and neglects all that other knowledge. Another problem is no one can, can, can be a truly consistent rationalist. No one can because we do live in this physical world and we do have our emotions and we do have intuition. But there's a deeper problem. If you try to be a rationalist without God, you've taken God out of the picture. Why would you think that the laws of logic are what they must be for you to be a consistent rationalist? Think about it. The laws of logic, they are immaterial, unchanging, absolute universal, they're knowable, and they are propositions. They are statements. A is A. Not A is not A. A or not A, nothing in between. What am I saying here? I'm talking about the laws of logic. They are propositions. Now, as a Christian, I believe that the laws of logic, which are which have all those attributes I just mentioned, are um, they arise from the mind of God, who is perfectly logical. God is universal. God is um, knowable. God is absolute. His authority is absolute. 
God is uh, universal in the sense that his presence is, is everywhere. God is immaterial. He's spirit. He's not made of matter. And God is knowable. God is self-revealing. So as a Christian, I believe in the laws of logic. I believe they're unchanging because God does not change. But if you've taken God out of the picture, why would you think that the laws of logic or the laws of mathematics or the laws of morality are real? Why would you think that they're unchanging? What are they based in? If you've taken God out of the picture, all you're left with is contingent matter. Or even if you're, if you hold to a worldview that doesn't say there's just matter, there's other stuff, changeable stuff. What is grounding the laws of logic? And without God and God's revelation, God's certain speech, you know, like, we have, we have it on God's authority that the laws of logic will not change. Why would you think that the laws of logic would continue from one moment to the next? And you might say, well, they just do. You know what? If that's your answer, um, that's called being arbitrary, and that's called having blind faith. I do sometimes talk to atheists who say, well, uh, logic isn't real. You know, um, Now, usually... When I have someone who says that, usually he subscribes to our second alternative, which is empiricism. Empiricism says that real knowledge, the, the only kind of knowledge that we can be certain about is that which comes through our senses, our five senses. Another name for this view is sometimes called scientism. Okay, It, it elevates science above everything else. And again, scientism or empiricism is going to neglect the other two sources of knowledge. And again, without God, there's not going to be any way to integrate these three sources. Here's the problem. Without God, we live in a random, unguided universe. Why would you think that the cosmos, the universe, is the kind of place that would give you true belief? And if we are the product of random, uncaused processes, time and chance acting on matter over millions and billions of years. Why would you think that the end result of that has anything to do with producing true beliefs? Why would you think that you can have warrant about any of your beliefs? Um, not to mention the fact that there is great difficulty in trusting our senses, isn't there? You know, you might look at a spoon in a glass from far away. Is that spoon really distorted? Is it really bent? Or is the light just distorted? We need our reason and our intuition to um, to make sense of the world. But, you know, if, if we say that empiricism is true, then we really can't rely on our reasoning or our intuition. Uh, the third way, the third alternative, the third godless alternative is subjectivism. Subjectivism is uh, the most like postmodernism. Um, basically, what subjectivism says is there is no absolute truth. All we can know is what is true for us. You know, there's, I think it's Walt Whitman who says, whatever satisfies your soul is truth. So, again, here we've got. Uh, radical uncertainty. Because yes, it's true that we can intuit a lot of things. Like, how do I know that the future will be like the past? Which I need the future to be like the past in order to be able to do science. Well, I can intuit that, but I have no direct knowledge of the future to know that the future will be like the past. 
but I can intuit that. How do I know my wife loves me? Well, I can intuit it. I feel it. Is that real knowledge? Well, a subjectivist would say yes. An empiricist would say no. A rationalist would say no. But as a Christian, I would say absolutely. So here's the here's the um, the crux of the matter. With any godless worldview, once you've taken God out of the equation, you're going to be ultimately left with radical uncertainty because you don't have a certain solid starting point for your knowledge upon which to build uh, a structure of knowledge that can encompass all the knowledge that there is in the world. All right. So rationalism, empiricism, and subjectivism, insofar as they try to make sense of the world and arrive at knowledge without God, ultimately fail and lead to radical uncertainty. With God, however, we have a basis for believing in our reason, in our five senses, and in our emotions and intuition, all as being valid sources of knowledge. Why? Because in God's Word, which we just looked at a few minutes ago, we see that that these are all valid sources of knowledge. So like rationalism doesn't actually, it has to presuppose reason, but doesn't give you a certain ability to trust in your reason. Empiricism has to presuppose your five senses, but has no way of even getting uh, to the, to any true conclusion using your five senses, because empiricism itself was not arrived at using your five senses. And then uh, subjectivism, same thing. It, it um, We have to presuppose the validity of our intuition, but we have no objective reason for thinking that our intuition is valid in any way, shape, or form. But when we presuppose God as our creator and the one who reveals himself and reveals truth, now we have reason for trusting, reason, five senses, and our intuition. And we also have a way of integrating all three, because all three, uh, we don't have to just choose one as the main thing, as the main conduit for knowledge. Instead, we can say all three are from God. So, to bring everything to a close here, to to summarize, God's revelation is that which unifies the different ways that we know. Real knowledge has a point. It has a purpose. It's there to help us to know God and to live for God and to glorify God and love God. And the ultimate way that we do that is through Jesus Christ. The greatest revelation that God ever gave us is when he sent his own son to take on human flesh and to die on the cross for his people, to raise, to, to be raised from the dead and to ascend back to the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ reigns and rules over the universe. And because God has revealed himself through Jesus, those of us who know Jesus, who have received his Holy Spirit, have certainty about the universe. Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, authenticates everything that the Bible says. Jesus believed the Bible was true, and he rose, he rose from the dead to prove that he is God, he is exactly who he said he is, and therefore we can trust what he says. Jesus says we can trust the Bible. And then the Bible authenticates all knowledge for us. The Bible gives us reasons, valid reasons, for believing in the the sources of knowledge and um, 
and the truth-seeking faculties that we have that accesses that knowledge and forms true beliefs. So in short, how can we know anything for certain? We can know things for certain because God has spoken. We can know because God has spoken. So that is what I believe is a biblical way of thinking about knowledge. Again, it might not be something that you've thought a ton about. It might be something that you don't think again about, think about again for a long time. But if you take the time to, um, to look into it, if you take the time to sit down with God's word and to really think, man, you know, why, why can't I really believe that God or, or that I, that I can have any certain knowledge about the world? You come to realize that we can know things. We can have certainty because God has spoken. Isn't God amazing? Don't we just need to pour out our hearts in gratitude and praise to God? He has revealed certain things to us. He doesn't want us to be stuck in the morass of radical uncertainty. He wants us to have true knowledge. He wants us to know him. He wants us to love him. And he wants us to live for him. Now, if you've, if you've benefited from this talk or any of the other talks in this uh, biblical worldview series, can I ask a favor from you? Can you prayerfully consider supporting myself, my family, and the Think Institute? The way you can do that is by going to thethink.institute slash partner. And while you're there, you can uh, uh, you can find out two ways to partner with us. One is by joining our team of prayer and financial partners. And um, there's different ways you can do that. You can do that through monthly tax-deductible gifts, um, or you can give a one-time gift to our ministry. That'll be tax-deductible as well. There's different options there on the site. If you go to thethink.institute slash partner, it will take you to our giving page. Uh, we are a crew ministry and so it'll bring you to our, our crew giving page. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think.